0: You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, another week where we have to put two episodes of the curse of oak island together into one podcast my schedule has been absolutely crazy uh, over the last couple of weeks. Hopefully it's starting to slow down a little bit now. Uh, I, and I know that this podcast is a, you know, a day late or so. I got a lot of people asking me if there's going to be one this week. Uh, this is going to be, you know, I usually come on here and say this is going to be a shorter podcast. Today it's going to be a longer one because we have two episodes to go through and quite a lot in those two and quite a lot of emails to catch up with too. So we've got a great show coming up for you. But before we get started... Let me talk some more about our Patreon page. Now, if you think this podcast is worth five dollars a month to you, that's like a dollar twenty-five a podcast, and you would like to see the podcast keep going and remain as ad-free as possible, then please consider becoming a patron of our show. You can go to patreon.com/slash oak island and sign up. Now, patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the US broadcast of each new episode of the Curse of Oak Island. And that chat is like my favorite part of doing all this. <laughs> it's just great. Uh, again, and we need more patrons coming by that chat. Uh, we, we always get a few, but we need, we need more of you out there. So come on over. Yeah, you know, and if you can't get there for the live thing, drop your comments on the Patreon. Uh, if you're a patron, drop your comments on the episode uh, you know, the next day or so. Because I'm usually recording maybe Wednesday or th- late Wednesday night. So you certainly got a day to, you know, uh, a business day on Wednesday to get your comments in. Again, go to patreon.com slash Island and uh, support the podcast. It's only five bucks a month. You can cancel any time. And I just want to thank all the new patrons. We actually had quite a few in the last couple of days here or in the last couple of weeks. Let's see. We had three. We had Ernest to thank Blake and Marie guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for listening to the show. Thanks for being part of all this. And, uh, you know joining the Digging Oak Island family here. It really is my honor to have you guys uh, as patrons. It really is. It's very humbling for me. Uh, and also if you prefer not to make a um, the monthly thing, you just want to make a one-time donation, get that? You can also do that by uh, going to our pod or don't go into our Venmo page. Now I'm a musician by trade, so I set up one of these sort of virtual tip jars. It is at Dave McBride Music. That's the only way I can get one of those um, those uh th- you know donations in there so venmo.com and then just to use username at Dave McBride Music. And thanks Steve for your generous donation. Uh, great supporter of the show. Thank you so so much. Always great to have you as one of our friends for sure. All right. This week we have two episodes to talk about. Uh again, I was away a lot last week. Um and uh don't worry. Again, it's not going to be a regular thing. I promise. But let's start today's podcast as we usually do with our emails and messages from you, the listeners. Let's start with Neil, who writes, Hello, listened to one show, second most recent, and I hated it. I thought it was for people who enjoy the show. It's actually about hating on the show. I'm sure there is an audience for that type of take, just not for me. Now, Neil, first, thank you for writing. Uh, I appreciate all the criticisms that anybody gives. Um, I, I'm sure you're not listening. It seems that you're not. I hope you are. Uh, I'm sorry for that this podcast isn't for you. And although I do kind of think your assessment of the podcast as a whole is incorrect, uh, and perhaps giving us more than one listen might change your mind, I would say, but that's not the reason I wanted to read this email. The reason is because, honestly, I am forever worried about people listening to the show and coming to this very same conclusion that Neil did here. I know I talk about this quite a bit, but sometimes I think people forget that I do a podcast about Oak Island, probably 75% of which is based entirely on this television show. Of course I love the show, or I wouldn't dedicate as much time of my life as I do to making a podcast about it, time that my wife usually looks at me and wonders why I keep doing this. Uh, But the challenge comes when it comes to criticizing the show, although I'm not sure sometimes I'm not sure even that criticize is the right word. Listen, I have honest issues with some of the choices that the editing makes, right? Um, And some of the ways that producers present the hunt to us. And I have no interest in not expressing those things in favor of remaining simply positive and kind of being an advocate for the show. I have no reason to do that. Like the the show doesn't need me to advocate for it, right? Uh, That would just be sort of intellectually dishonest and Not at all what I set out to do here on this podcast, but let me also add this. I also have no, almost no issues with the team and what they do, the things they do in search of the truth here. I think they're doing a wonderful job. I think they're doing the best job that anyone has ever done in the 225-year history of the Oak Island hunt. I think sometimes those two things, the criticism of the production and respect for what we call the fellowship... Can be hard to separate, and even harder to express the criticisms without sounding like I'm just dumping on the show. Anyway, Neil, if you're listening, first of all, thanks for giving us another try, and I want you to know that I am uh, that my aim on this podcast is by no means to quote unquote hate on the show, as you say. I mean that's just no fun, you know. I, I I'm here to offer an honest assessment of the hunt as I possibly can, as honest assessment as as I can. Absolutely do, with the goal of always be setting out to find the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. And sometimes the production gets in the way of the search for the truth. There's no other way to say it. Again, Neil, thank you. Anyway, right. let's see, let's get into the let's get into more of the Oak Island stuff. Let's hear now from Jeff who writes, Hi Dave. I know there's been plenty of discussion about the location of the well and why somebody would choose there to do it. My guess from the beginning is that it was a natural spring that somebody stumbled upon or found, and they built a well-like of like stone feature around it since it was already there naturally to use as a place to get fresh spring water. Jeff. Jeff, that makes all the sense in the world, for sure. And folks, keep in mind, this well is right on top of the beach now, right? But it wasn't always, it hasn't always been that close to the shoreline. Ocean levels are higher now than they have ever been. So the beach itself would have been quite a bit further back, right? Uh, and, and this well further inland, centuries ago, then we see it now. It's a fascinating feature for sure. I'm not at all convinced it means anything to the treasure hunt, but it's fascinating nonetheless, and it will get more and more fascinating as we discuss the episodes in just a few minutes. Great stuff as always, Jeff. Nice to hear from you. Uh, Now, with that in mind, let's hear kind of on the same lines uh, from our patron, Ashley, who says, first off, love the podcast. I'm listening to the review for episode 14, and the well has been brought up again. Everyone keeps talking about the location of the well and why it's close to the water. In an episode of Beyond Oak Island, Ari's Treasure, Marty and Maddie go to Florida to look for a treasure that is theorized to be around this well. If I remember correctly, they talk about the well being a natural spring that they turned into a well. It's not nearly as close to the water as the well on Oak Island, but it's pretty close. My guess is that the well on Oak Island was built out of convenience. I'm not sure why it is completely flat to the ground or whatever else they find or whatever else they will find in the area. Just my thoughts. I have no qualifications whatsoever. Thanks for everything. Great find there, Ashley. Uh, I have no qualifications either. Uh, doesn't keep us from talking about it, though. That's why the podcast is here. Unfortunately, I, I don't really watch Beyond Oak Island all that much. I mean, I, I event, let me say it like this I eventually watch the show, I get to them, but I don't watch them right away like I do with The Curse of Oak Island. I like that show. I like to see the team, and I like, you know, I kind of like Maddie Blake too, but it's Oak Island that I'm in for. Right, that's that's why I'm here. The Oak Island mystery, uh, treasure hunting in in general, is not um, all that interesting to me. And truth be told, I've said this many times before: the treasure that potentially is located in Oak Island is sort of secondary in my mind. It's the history. It's the history of the hunt. The history of those who've done the hunt. It's the history behind. The people who may have done whatever it is we're looking for here, right? That's the stuff that grabs me about Oak Island, not just looking for buried treasure. Um, So that's why I don't watch it all that much. But anyway, thank you for pointing this out to us. I'm starting to believe, um, you know, you guys, both Ashley and Jeff here on this one, um, that, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I'm also starting to believe less and less That this well or whatever it is, uh, again, while fascinating, is it all related to the mystery? It seems like it may be something just put there. Who knows? Time to go now across the pond for some advice from Alex in England, who says, Hi there, Dave. Thank you so much for such a great podcast. Really enjoy hearing such considered evaluation of the episodes each week. Thanks indeed for doing it. Heard a listener in this week's podcast, Lee from the U.K., sorry, not sure of the spelling, but mentioning that the frustration of the U.K. UK being quite a few episodes behind the U.S. Just a tip for your listeners outside the U.S. who might know this, might not know this, sorry. If you use a VPN, you can select USA and then on the History Channel websites, the episodes are available for stream for free. Some VPNs are free in some browsers. Some are a few dollars or euros per month. The current episode is available literally within hours of the USA broadcast. So here in UK on Wednesday mornings, UK time, it's all ready for you to watch. This way, you're just a few hours behind the live showing of each episode rather than a frustrating three or four weeks. Also means by the time your podcast comes out, we can have watch the episode in the UK. And so enjoy your podcast without spoilers. Hope this helps some of your listeners outside the US best regards and thanks, Alex in England. Alex, great stuff. We do have a lot of listeners who can't participate too much in the podcast because of this exact reason. They're not able to watch new episodes on the same timeline as the U.S. listeners can. Hopefully with your help here, some of them can. Uh, I'm totally clueless with this stuff, so I cannot endorse nor can I recommend what Alex says to do here. I don't know anything about it, honestly. I wish I knew what it's talking about, but I I do hope this helps some of you guys watching outside of the United States and listening to the podcast. Thank you so much, Alex. All right, let's hear now from our new patron, Marie, who says, Hi, David. Thank you for uh, offering to be a source to share ideas and get info regarding the Oak Island show. I really appreciate it. About the gold found, gold doesn't disintegrate. So how can there be minute specks of gold floating around? If that's the condition of all the gold, then sluicing will be needed. However, If that gold has been transferred throughout the tunnels by water, it will be impossible to get all the gold out. Also, if there is a large deposit of gold in the baby blob, how can that be related to the findings elsewhere? In particular, the piece of parchment or the leather binding found nowhere near the shaft. And in one of the latest episodes, a camera was sent down a shaft, but we couldn't see anything. What if the goodies were there but buried under sediment, making making viewing impossible? I think there was more than one deposit of treasure on the island, possibly by several groups over the centuries. Okay, let me just stop and interject here, Marie, because you've got a couple of things you're talking about. You make a great point about the gold and it not disintegrating. Um, that is one of my main questions with all of this. If they are detecting gold in water or even in wood, as we'll learn from this week's episodes, um, how did those traces end up there if they originated from what we call a treasure deposit? Does gold uh, flake or slough off of coins and jewelry to the point where it can end up in the surrounding waters and such? If gold is, uh, you know, what do we say, Um, you you know, (laughs) beat up by the collapse of the money pit, could that have caused something like that? I just don't know. I'm genuinely asking and I'm really curious as to why this whole thing hasn't been discussed on the show. What are we detecting here? Uh, we know there are natural deposits of gold in Nova Scotia. We know this. There's a river called the Gold River just to, <laughs> that you could see from Oak Island. So there is gold there. Could that be the source? We just haven't talked about this. It's very strange that we're just getting these results and not getting a conversation about how these results could come. Now, that's where kind of where we need to come in as viewers. And I think that Marie, because let's be honest, At the risk of criticizing the show, the show isn't going to do that for us. The show isn't going to offer us the possibilities of it not being a treasure. They're only going to offer us the possibility that it is something mysterious and a treasure. So it's up to us to kind of do the research. I've been trying. If anyone out there can answer this question, let's have it. You know, How could there be these pieces of gold and these traces of gold found in the water and found in wood? How is that possible? Let's get, a, let's get an explanation other than the Knights Templar. Anyway, back to Marie. Finally, for now, do you know if anyone is researching Samuel Ball specifically, where did he go to turn in his treasure, his treasure into cash? Where did he bank? Did he bury a lot of his found treasures near his home on the island? Or did he purchase a home off the island and bury the extra treasure or cash there? He had descendants, and I assume he provided for them after his death. Did he cash out what treasures he had and give the cash to his family without divulging how, the, how he became so wealthy? It would make sense for the family to never know the true source of his riches because they wouldn't be able to leak the truth throughout the years, keeping any remaining treasures safe and still on the island or where he may have buried it off the island. Please get back to me as soon as you can because this show still has me on pins and needles after all these years. And if you have any theories or answers, I want to hear them. Thank you, Marie. Oh, Marie, I have some theories and I'm not sure you're going to like them. When it comes to Samuel Ball, okay, I think we need to step back a bit. And I think we need to separate legend from reality. Samuel Ball was by no means, despite what the show has you say, one of the richest men in Nova Scotia. That just is not true. (laughs) He was a former slave. who fought in the British Army, and after the Revolution, he came to Oak Island, like many a former loyalist, and he became a cabbage farmer. The guy worked his butt off, despite literally everything in life being stacked against him, and he made a nice living for himself, something that was rare for somebody in his circumstance. He made a nice living for himself and his family, and was, at that time, he had a really good business, since cabbage was a sought-after commodity by the Navy. A lot of what he accomplished and the details about his life and his business practices and what he did and how much have been lost to history. Again, this is not an uncommon story for a former slave and really anyone for that matter. But you have to keep in mind, the only thing that makes his wealth strange when they say that is because he came to Oak Island as a former slave and he worked his way up to what we would call sort of a middle class existence. This was again, this was not one of the richest men in Nova Scotia. And the show has actually said that. I mean, listen, folks, you can go to Nova Scotia and find old mansions of people who were the really the richest people in Nova Scotia at his time. That's not what that's not the kind of life that this guy lived. This was a time when common farmers which was what he really was. Didn't keep financial records, and certainly no one saved them. And the reason why there isn't a Samuel Ball, uh, you know, family line of rich people that extends to now is because he really wasn't all that rich, as far as I can tell. Uh, and Laird Niven agrees with me on this one. Samuel Ball's wealth was not unusually large, uh, and certainly not all that mysterious. It's unusual in that he managed to do it in the circumstances he was in, just to keep repeating myself here. Is is it uncommon for someone born into the position he was to raise to the heights he rose to? Yes, it is uncommon, but it's not completely unheard of, not by any means. You know, Ball was a fascinating guy and a fascinating chapter in Oak Island's history. And the team should be looking into his past and telling his tale because he was there when this all happened, right? But at this point, There's nothing but circumstantial evidence at best to link Mr. Ball to the mystery or any treasure. Now, that can change, certainly as more archaeology is done. But uh, until now, you know, um, there really hasn't been a serious attempt to look into Samuel Ball, uh, who he was and what role he might have played in all this and what he might have known. But Laird Niven has been doing some research He's likely continuing that project. Um, so perhaps something will be found to give us a little more clarity on all this. But uh, it's really going to take us speaking to Lair directly if that clarity is eh, no, we're not really finding much. Because as of now, they really haven't found much linking him. Um, again, I have no reason to believe at this point that Samuel Ball had, as you used, as the words you used, a treasure to cash out. I hope that helps. All right. Great stuff, Marie. I love that question. I love getting into that stuff. Now, an email from Tim who writes, so this was a huge topic a season or two ago, but what is going on with the Mi'kmaq Discovery Area in the swamp? The show nearly got shut down and all the exploration near the stone road was stopped. Now, nothing. I thought one of the goals was to find out the who, what, where, when, and why of the uh, that is missing out on all this. I hope the producers of the show hear this and can start adding recaps for some of this stuff. Instead of showing us what happened last week again, show us what they left open-ended last year. Even the non-treasure people out there can't deny the fact that stuff happened on the island that has never been documented. A huge part of my interest in the show is finding out that history. I enjoy seeing the technology being put to use to get answers, but come on. Let us know. I can't believe that the tribal people stopped progress just to stop it. Sorry, I'm ranting here. Keep up the good work uh, you're doing on your podcast. It's my favorite, Tim in Milwaukee. All right, Tim, I think we can all agree on this point, right? I know that as of the beginning of this past summer on Oak Island, there was not an agreement yet with the involved parties to restart excavation on that area. I've not had any updates since that, since that point, um, I can start working on that. I don't know if there's anything in place to start this summer, which is right around the corner. Right. Um, but even if I do know, um, here's the thing, I don't want to spoil this stuff, right? There are sometimes, there are occasionally things I know are going to be revealed on the show. Uh, and I don't tell you that stuff because I, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to know right? I find it out because I'm in a conversation with somebody about something else, right? Uh, And I'm told, please don't repeat this. And so I don't, you know, and that's what we would be here. But what I can also add is this, and I'm not sure you know this already, but you probably do. These things take an incredible amount of time to sort out when it comes to these government uh, bureaucracies, right? Also, if every representative involved in the government parties that have to do this came to the island to have a look there's a decent chance i think a more than decent chance that they asked not to be filmed and asked that the process that they're going through here not be covered on the show so i i think stuff has happened uh but we don't have a final agreement yet in the timeline of the show um and i think that uh you know there is going to be something on this in the future. Anyway, (laughs) we're certainly in agreement here, Tim, that we want to know more about this. Thanks for the email. Let's go now to our friend Gary from the Pirates Fan Forum Podcast. Folks, if there are any Pirates baseball fans out there, and I know there are, because you've mentioned it to me, some of you. This is the podcast to listen to. It's hard to find baseball content this good for free, especially if you're out of market. So go give it a listen. Pirates fan forum podcast. Gary's also a big Oak Island fan, and he sent me a message on Twitter that said this: "I'm fascinated by this brooch or whatever it is, and I'm starting to find myself appreciating the garden shaft dig. Call me crazy, but they seem to be building to something this season." Gary, I'm not going to call you crazy. I think they are. Uh, not sure what it is between the brooch, the well, the garden shaft, the gold readings. And don't forget that Muon stuff is we haven't even spoken about in 14 weeks or something. Let me say it like this. It's starting to become obvious to me that the season is going to end with a flurry, right? Now, speaking of the Muon technology, our man in Portugal, Lionel, has resurfaced. Where you been, my friend? He sent a BBC article called Hidden Corridor and Great Pyramid of Giza Seen for the First Time. I'll try to post it on our Facebook page, but if I don't, search it right there. It's on the BBC. And Lionel writes, Hi, Dave. Hope all is well. I haven't had much to contribute lately, but this season has been the best in years. I just shared in a Facebook group this news piece from the BBC, which I found really interesting. This was the void originally found years ago with Muon tomography, the same technique being used in Oak Island and still waiting for results. We now have visual confirmation of the results in the Great Pyramid. So when the results, whatever they are, come up for Oak Island, that should be reliable too. Fingers crossed. Uh, They, you know, you know, first of all, don't be a stranger. Thank you. Keep keep coming back. Keep keep us writing here. Uh, keep writing in here. They're really keeping us hanging on about this one, aren't they? I mean, I almost forgot about this whole thing, you know, sometimes because we just hear nothing of it. And when you think about it, it really does feel like the show is going to end like this with this thing, right? Doesn't it? Like the seismic stuff did a couple of seasons back. Remember those Remember, uh, the, the, the great, the, 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 bluster with which the producers spoke about this, how this technology is going to solve the mystery. You know, it feels like we're really kind of leading up to this kind of worries me that we're not talking about it at all this season, but that makes me feel like this is going to be the season's cliffhanger. Uh, the thing that makes us all come back for season 11. Thanks, Lionel. Don't be a stranger, my friend. Let's go now to an email from a listener named Matt who writes, Good evening, Dave. Discovered your podcast on Spotify this week. Thought it would be fun to reach out. A couple of observations. One, I have to agree with you. The history portions of the show are interesting, and I would much rather hear about that each week instead of the created drama of the next aha moment. I do think they, they could include more information from Laird Niven instead of some of the other filler in the show. Two, The Money Pit area is completely confusing to me for the last few seasons. They did ground-penetrating radar a few seasons back, and that seems to get little traction lately. The team has spent a large portion of money excavating the garden shaft while continuing to poke holes everywhere. If that little blob or baby blob is such a big deal and is possibly the source of gold and silver deposits in the water, then why not use one of those huge cans from a few seasons back and just go for broke? They only have to go 90 to 100 feet, so why not? They continually get excited. Two A, he writes. They continually get all excited about wood uh, about wood found in the drilling samples. But hasn't this area of the island been scraped, plowed, torn apart on several occasions? Didn't Robert Dunfield obliterate the area during his search? Just think that some of that wood could be explained that way, unless I'm missing something. Okay, I'll stop here and kind of interject. Yes and no on that point. It depends on where you're digging. Dunfield created what was no doubt a huge crater and then just bulldozed it all back in. But the crater by no means included the entire money pit area. So it was sort of like an upside down cone shape thing. So much of the area they're drilling now is not inside the Dunfield crater. Certainly not at below the depths of, you know, 50 to 70 feet. Um, And the guys know that too, right? They don't mention it a lot on the show. But you can often see from Steve Guptill's slides that he shows, especially in the war room parts, the slides of the money pit, that he has it marked out where the Dunfield crater was and how all these holes and caissons that they've been digging relate to it. You certainly know that when they're within sort of the 50 to 100 foot range, that when they're doing that and pulling wood out, that they're, they're expecting it not to be affected by the Dunfield crater. And that when they do expect the Dunfield Crater, that's when they're kind of digging further down. Does that make sense? Now, having said all that, the garden shaft is outside the Dunfield Crater by quite a bit. So there's um, so a lot of stuff they've been digging on this year. Anyway, Matt continues. Three, I might be the minority, but I enjoy Gary. Sure, he may not always be on point with observations, but at least he generally gets excited about things. Some of, the other times, uh, some of the others, at times, don't show a lot of emotion. I agree he could be reined in some or have him approach things a little bit differently. I would love to see him do more metal detecting and show more things that they find. Maybe not nails, but there is a lot more, I bet, they find. Four. The hopping around of the show, it seems like everything gets four to five minutes, then hop somewhere else, four to five minutes, hop somewhere else. That is one part of the show that drives me a little crazy. Wish they would gear the episodes a little differently. This focus, this week, focus only on the money pit, save a bunch of info and do a whole lot of show with it. Uh, then next week, Gary, metal detecting. Yes, I'd watch that episode if, if they put enough good stuff in it. Then a week where they discuss the history, do the crackpot sessions, and a review of where they are and with, uh, at with the search. Just a more concise, episodic format instead of every week getting a smidge of this and that. Five. Perhaps I missed something or have forgotten, but why nothing on Smith's Cove of late? Okay, that's my observations. Thanks for the time and what you're doing, Dave. Looking forward to hear more on and Podcast. Matt. Matt, great stuff. Um, and not much to say about a lot of what you wrote here. I mean, these are your opinions, and I agree with a lot of them, especially the, uh, you know, I've been saying for a while that I would like to see the show sort of formatted a little bit differently, especially as we move forward. But, uh, worth mentioning that last part there um, about Smith's Cove. What I would say is I believe uh, that Smith's Cove was well and truly excavated. And despite leaving us with some doubts as viewers, I honestly think they did what they were there to do and that they've turned the page on this. They uncovered structures they knew were there before they started and weirdly got very little information out of any of them. Uh, the worst kept secret is that these structures, like the U-shaped structure, were most likely the work of former searchers trying to crack the mystery of the flooding system, uh, and it was undocumented. You know, They were not able to truly uncover the finger drains to get a look at that, and the wharf structure offered little in the way of clues. Um, you know, It was cool to watch, uh, but in the end, it was not very successful as a project and a discovery project, as it did little more than inform them about, again what was obviously undocumented search activity. Thanks again, Matt. I hope this helps. Honestly, I'd be stunned if they ever went back to work in Smith's Cove, although I think a lot of people would like that. All right, that's it for the emails and messages this week. If you have any questions or comments you would like to have answered on a future podcast, just send them in. Dig Island at gmail.com. It is time now to discuss Season 10, Episode 15 and 16 of The Curse of Oak Island. Like I said, folks, this should be the last time we have to put two episodes into one podcast. Uh, my schedule is still pretty tough, but it's getting a little bit better, and I think I can carve out some time on a Wednesday night or Thursday morning to, uh, to, to, uh, to record this for us every week. Uh, just a ton of stuff in February for me, but things are opening up. Hopefully, we can get it out every week, at least till the end of the television season. And just like the last time we did two episodes in one podcast, what we're going to do here is we're sort of going to treat them as one episode. We're going to follow it project by project like we usually do, and we'll just do it across both the episodes. So let's begin actually over on Lot 26. In the episode 15 called Would You Believe It? Would spell W-O-O-D to create a bad pun. We start off at the Interpretive Center. Where the team is examining this brooch or this pin, whatever it is, by Gary Drayton that was found in the previous week. Now, Emma Culligan, who is an archaeometallurgist, I mean, she has a job that is so complex, I can't even pronounce it or remember it. And she's also quickly becoming, let's face it, one of the most important people on the island right now, certainly the most important scientist. Um, and Emma has examined this piece, this brooch. And has results of what she calls sort of a more intensive and a more detailed CT scan. And also the results of an XRF scan, which tells her uh, you know, what the item is made of. And she says that it's made of basically brass with a piece of lead glass through it. The lead glass is that sort of red or orangey thing you see, you know, that you see kind of running through the middle of it. Emma also says that it certainly looks from its chemical makeup to be at least before 1850. That's where it originated, the time frame it originated. So it's old. But it's important to note here, right, that it can very well have been made or purchased and lost by someone who lived on the island after the discovery of the money pit. The show never likes to point that little fact out. They only like to point out the... The possibility of it being before 1795, but it certainly is from Emma's um, expertise uh, that, uh, you know, that it could be from from a time frame that fits into, uh, you know, the post discovery of the money pit. So I guess that's kind of like where we come in, right? <laughs> to, to mention that stuff, because the show doesn't like to. Uh, like I said, this new CT scan gives the team a really good and detailed look under the sort of dirt and corrosion to see what this piece really looks like and what it once looked like. And it's clear that it is a uh, really beautiful piece of decorative jewelry, somewhat complex and, and ornate even. Um, and it has one of these sort of beautiful leaf designs And that makes the team start thinking of and talking about the fleur-de-lis. Now, this predictably launches the narration into a diatribe about the French and also the Knights Templar. Uh, There are two things I want to say about this. First, Matt on the Patreon put it best when he said, quote, just because an artifact came from France doesn't mean the people wearing it were French. Uh, Matt, you're totally correct. (laughs) And let me just add a second thing to that. Just because it is a fleur de lis, which I honestly, from what we see here in these scenes, I'm not at all convinced it is a fleur de lis. <laughs> you know, it it's a leaf for sure, but I'm not so sure it's a fleur de lis design, which is a very specific kind of design, right? Um, but I'm not at all certain that it is that. I mean, they are leaves, um, but even if it were a fleur de lis. Just because it is a fleur-de-lis also does not prove for one second that the people who wore it or made it or lost it were French, certainly not Templars. The fleur-de-lis has been used on things like flags and crowns, coats of arms, coins, by everyone from the English, the Albanians, the Scottish, the Spanish, the Italians the Americans, and wait for it, the Canadians. Of course, the Canadians. (laughs) Again, I'm not trying to rain in anyone's parade here, but sometimes we just need a little perspective on on what the show is giving us, right? So later on in episode 15, Rick, Jack, and Helen and Laird go out to lock 26 to look at an old stone wall over by the well that they've been looking at recently. So we're not getting any more work on the well. We've moved over to this stone wall. There's an interesting quote here by the narration when this uh, during the description of lot 26, Robert Clotworthy says that the island was, quote, relatively uninhabited until the discovery of the money pit in 1795. Now You know, I always like to point these things out, but this is an interesting admission by the writers. Uh, also, a really fun and somewhat obtuse way of phrasing it, right? I mean... These writers spend so much time peddling what I like to tell you and what is absolutely a false idea that the island was uninhabited before 1795. I'm always stunned when the show actually admits the truth. Yet they can't just they can't go the whole way, can they? <laughs> they just have to say something like relatively uninhabited. I mean, by what means do they land on the word relatively? It must certainly be true, uh, you know, that it's been relatively uninhabited for decades after 1795. I mean, I could call it that. I can call it relatively uninhabited right now. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Back to the rock wall. It's old and crude looking and sure, it seems to run from um, inland right up to the beach. Uh, and from the way they're talking about it, it seems it's possibly to be a lot marker, like something to separate where one person's property ends and another begins. Laird probes to see if the wall extends any further out toward the beach through these sort of wetlands that we see here, but it doesn't. So they decide to excavate what they see and kind of get a better look. So later on in the show, Alex Lagina is there with Jack Begley, Emma, and Laird to begin digging three-foot square test pits, which is sort of the standard procedure for beginning an archaeological excavation. Alex pulls out a piece of what he says looks like charcoal, which can certainly help date human activity over here. Uh, But the real talk comes when Jack calls the rest of the team over to see this giant tree, which appears to be growing out of the wall itself. Now, it's hard for us really to tell uh, from the pictures they've given us whether or not he's right or wrong about this. But I always defer to Laird. Laird seems to think that way—that the tree and the wall are situated um, in a in a manner that makes the wall likely older than the tree. The tree grew up through the wall, uh, and it's a big darn tree, probably an old one at that. It's it's not hard to date a tree, so we might get a good idea of how old this wall might be after they do that dating, which we'll get to in a second. Now, just for some context. Lot 26 was once owned by the aforementioned Samuel Ball from 1787 until the mid-1840s. He farmed on the island much of that time, and Laird remarks that if the wall indeed predates the Samuel Ball era, that would certainly be strange. Now, at the risk of belaboring my point, (laughs) I can't help but mention um, when Alex says, quote, Samuel Ball was living here at the time the money pit was discovered. But wait. I thought it was relatively uninhabited before the money pit discovered. And now we find out that somebody was living here and farming here. I mean, didn't they say that just earlier? It's relatively uninhabited. Anyway, I think I made my point on all this, right? (laughs) The guys decide to core the tree and to date it. Uh, And at the beginning of episode 16 called Striking Gold, a rather hopeful title to say the least, we see a gentleman by the name of Peter Romke, who is a forestry technician, Come to the island to do just that. Now, Romkey takes his core sample and I suppose sends it to some lab somewhere to date the tree. But after he does so, there is this strange scene where Romkey goes over to Laird Niven to talk about what he thinks of this rock wall. He says he's sort of, I don't know, at at the risk of sounding a little flippant about this, he says he's kind of super interested in these sort of things, knows a little bit about it, and starts talking about how he thinks the wall is put together in a similar way to old castles in England or Scotland. Now, I'm not going to go too much into this because let's face it, there's a lot of conjecture from someone who's not an expert in the field and who hasn't really excavated here or done any kind of really looking other than with his eyes. But the editing does at least make us think that Laird also agrees that the wall was built in an unusual manner, at least unusual for rock walls built by farmers in Nova Scotia. So we'll go with that for now. It will be interesting to see where this all goes from here if Laird eventually concludes that this is sort of a strange object, a strange structure. Anyway, later in the episode, archaeologist Miriam Amaral comes back to Oak Island after a couple weeks to help assist Laird in the excavation and examination of this rock wall. The archaeologists are joined by Alex Lagina to perform what they call a cross-section of the wall, basically pulling it all apart to see how it was built and if there's any artifacts found therein that tell them who built it. Alex pulls out a piece of red granite rock, And then spins what can only be described as a true oak island deep cut by comparing the rock to what he calls the kingdom stone. So let's just give you the nickel version of what that is. Norwegian organist, yes I said Norwegian organist, Petter Amundsen, believes that he has found the evidence that Shakespeare's works were actually written by someone other than William Shakespeare. And that the proof of this theory can be found in the very in the very first public works uh, published works of the Bard's plays and that kind of stuff called the first folios, which were published after Shakespeare's death by a couple of his contemporaries. All of which, all of these contemporaries, I suppose, must have been in on this decade-long ruse. Now, how does this relate to Oak Island? Without getting too much into it, because the theory makes my head explode, Amundsen also believes the first folios contained clues that the proof of this cover-up was buried on Oak Island. And the key to finding this proof is by using Nolan's Cross as something of a treasure map to create an ancient symbol called the Tree of Life. On this Tree of Life, there are multiple points with fun names, depending on how you translate them, names like Mercy, Wisdom, Splendor, and... Kingdom. Now, this was way back in season one. Amundsen came to the war room in what might be the very first ever crackpot session of the Curse of Oak Island, and he presented this theory to the team. Later in the same episode, Alex joins Marty and Peter Amundsen as they traipse along the island, uh, looking for these points, these these mercy points, and now Kingdom points, what they're now calling stones. Right down where the Kingdom stone should be, they found a red granite rock that was split. Likely naturally split, which is what happened when the glaciers receded during the Ice Age. So that's what Alex is referring to here at the Rock Wall. And I have to say, I do admire how these guys can sometimes connect Two uh, finds that I find absolutely no evidence to connect whatsoever. It makes for great television, but from my point of view, uh, the point of view of wanting to get to the hunt, to the truth of it all, I honestly have to say I think they gave way too much time here to this Kingdom Stone conversation. I mean, for no other reason. Are we saying these are the only two red granite walls that exist on Oak Island? You get what I mean. It's just, you know, more than a little bit flimsy in my mind to discuss it this way. Now, before we leave Lot 26, Neil on the Patreon remarked, they need to map out the wall or see where it goes. Maybe it was just proper uh, a property boundary. And you are 100% correct about that, Neil. Honestly, what is Steve Guptill waiting for? <laughs> this is the first thing I would have done as soon as I decided to examine this wall. There are multiple landowners um, on the island and multiple farms. A rock wall boundary makes all the sense in the world. For, uh, for one of them to have built, you know. But again, let's let Laird do his thing here before we get too far down that road. Now, before we take a break and head over to the garden shaft and the money pit area, let's just take a quick stop over at lot four where we see Rick and uh, Gary metal detecting in episode 16. And this scene certainly looks like it was shot in the middle of the summer here as Rick is sweating pretty bad. Not much to say about this scene. Gary finds a piece of an old boot, probably the heel of it, then pulls out an old axe head Um, which for some reason Gary mentions the Vikings when talking about where this axe may have come from I'm not sure where he gets Vikings from Um, you know Steve on the Patreon had me rolling around laughing when he asked could it be that the Home Depot receipt was dropped by Eric the Red a little sarcasm my friend yeah I think so All right, let's head over to the money pit. Um, And I'm gonna try to separate into two different money pit projects that we see in these episodes. Those being the exploratory drilling program and also the garden shaft. In episode 15, we see the beginning of this said exploratory drilling program. Uh, And in the area they're calling the baby blob, the area off the garden shaft in the money pit where Dr. Spooner says the source of traces of gold can be found. Uh, The sources of gold found in the water samples. Um, First up is the continuation of the exploratory drilling program. Uh, The first scene we see from that program uh, is in episode 15. We see the team starting to dig a new borehole labeled DN11.5. Later on in the episode, Charles and Terry are at their familiar table going through the core samples as they come up. Now down past the 90-foot mark, the drill, quote, broke through something, as the drilling guy tells us, indicating the possibility of a void down there, potentially more evidence of the tunnel running east to west up by the garden shaft that they've been chasing for a number of weeks here. The subsequent core comes up with wood right where they expected to find it, 95 to 100 feet, indicating that they are onto this tunnel. They run a camera down the borehole to have a look, but the water is so dirty, they have zero visibility, so that idea turns out to be something of a non-starter. But Matt on the Patreon said it best here when he remarked, it's still a great show. I'm the biggest skeptic that I know, but I'm still on the edge of my seat watching a small camera drop down a pipe until it goes black. You know what? <laughs> Matt, me too. I just love when they do stuff like that. I'm just waiting for to see what I could gleam and pause and look at and all that stuff, right? So nothing on the camera, but back when the wood was first found, Dr. Spooner grabbed a sample of it, uh, and later on the episode, we see Rick and Craig Tester in the Interpretive Center meeting with Laird Niven and Emma Culligan to hear the results of the testing they did on this sample. Emma says that the wood itself contains traces of gold, which, of course, gets everyone excited. But I, being who I am, immediately say to myself, Can we go back and test every other piece of wood pulled out of the money pit for gold? Have they done that already? I mean, they got wood from how many boreholes just this year alone? And how many over the 11 years they've been here, 10 years they've been here? Have they all been tested for gold? If not, why not? And then why did they decide to test this one? And if they have tested other samples, can we please see those results But thankfully, Marty appears to be thinking along the very same lines, tells the team to do somewhat exactly that, find and test other samples. If for no reason, other reason, then, Marty says, if they do test the others and the gold is, quote, not everywhere else, then it's just got to mean we're closing in on it. it. Makes a ton of sense to me. Rick ends the discussion by looking at Emma and saying, we'll get you some more samples. Now, in this scene, one of my favorite lines of the episode, maybe one of my favorite lines from this entire season comes when Marty says to the team, why is there gold everywhere except in our hands? I mean, really, Marty could not have said it any better than that. I mean, he's not joking. I I, I mean, it sounds funny when he says it, but he's not joking. They keep finding all these traces in water and all over the island and now possibly even in pieces of wood and yet not a single speck of Actual spendable gold has ever been found during the entire 200 plus year history of the Oak Island treasure hunt, save for an alleged small piece of a chain pulled up in like the 19th century. How can that be? As they like to say, that's Oak Island for you. And while that line is becoming something of a cliche for sure on the show, I mean, it's really true in this particular case, right? Only on Oak Island would you be searching for gold find trace amounts in random holes and in pieces of wood, and yet that source of those traces is still eluding the millions and millions of dollars being poured into searching for it. Now, in episode 16, we don't see much from the exploratory drilling project except that there is a new hole being drilled in the baby blob, DN 10.5, which also should be along the route that's supposed to the tunnel they're chasing here, but the drill goes all the way down to 120 feet, only to find nothing. But this means they simply missed the tunnel, uh, or at least let's hope so. Anyway, that's it for this project, for the exploratory project here. Let's take a quick break and come back with the Garden Shaft. All right, on to the Garden Shaft. At the beginning of episode 15, we see Rick and Scott Barlow heading back to go underground again. Dumas' guys tell them that the shaft is now down to a depth of 59 feet, I think he says, and he wants them to go down and have a look at an old ladder and platform that's still intact down there from the original shaft. It's a really cool thing to see, right? The centuries-old handmade ladder. Scott then points out what he calls a quote-unquote slump in the structure. I have no idea really what he's looking at. I have to admit it's hard to see uh, what he means, and he's talking about... um, you know, uh, how, how he's phrasing it is hard to tell because they're not really showing us. We're just sort of getting glimpses here. Uh, but the result of what he's saying, and I, and I certainly believe him, he knows what he's talking about. The, the result of what he's saying brings on a lot of talk about offset chambers um, and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And Dumas will apparently start probing out from the garden shaft as they go deeper and deeper to check and see if anything is there. Later on in the episode, Rick, Marty, Scott, and Alex uh, again are speaking with the Dumas foreman and in the research center this time about this very same thing, about using the garden shaft to explore out from there to find any possible tunnels or offset chambers. So let's talk about this probing project, right? In episode 15, it makes me think of two things worth mentioning here. First, please keep in mind the garden shaft is without doubt a searcher shaft. It is not the original money pit. It cannot be. I just want to make sure we all get that because I think there is some confusion among some viewers. There is no way the garden shaft could be the money pit because the original money pit completely collapsed in the 19th century. No ladder would have survived that. Nothing did. So this must be a searcher shaft. Now, could this searcher shaft lead them to the location of the original money pit? Sure. But just keep in mind, as the season goes on, that this can't actually be the original money pit shaft. And also, remember that almost every searcher, certainly post 1860 or so, tried to dig a shaft down and then tunnel across to where they thought the treasure was to try to avoid the flooding. This is par for the course in Oak Island. So at the risk of throwing some more water on your fire here, the best guess we can make about the garden shaft and the possible treasure—a tunnel leading from it is that it is yet another undocumented and therefore failed attempt by treasure hunters to find the treasure. Uh, you know, and this is, again, something that happened for 150 years. Now, before we move on to episode 16, early in episode 15, the guy from Dumas explains that they're taking the shaft down to 80 feet which we've heard about before, but that got Steve on the Patreon to ask, quote, if there is a tunnel at 90 to 100 feet headed towards the garden shaft, why not just extend it another 10 feet downwards? Easy work for Dumas would be my guess. It's a great question, Steve. I don't know why they're not. Um, My guess is something will happen, either drilling down from the 80 feet or something like that. I have no idea. It is a strange thing to try to put together, but let's wait and see. So as we begin episode 16, we see the team kicking off this new probing project. It's being run by a guy from Duma's named Brandon Vanderhooft, and they are using an incredibly badass sounding thing called a hy- hydraulic earth drill. The plan is to drill three holes on each side of the wall of the garden shaft for a total of 12 holes. Again, now, are they doing this multiple times as the shaft progresses down towards the 80 feet? Remember the tunnel they claim they have followed, as as Steve said, is down past 90 feet. So, you know, what are the plans then? It'd be nice to know a little bit more about this. How do they examine this tunnel if they stop at 80 feet? All be part of this probing project. These are questions that won't be answered this week, but I think, you know, as Steve said, it's worth keeping in mind as we go forward. Charles Barkhouse comes to check in on the process as Dumas is drilling the fourth and final hole into the wall. The drill hits. As Vanderhoof says, something pretty good there, but it turns out to be nothing but a huge boulder. So they're this—they take the hydraulic earth drill out and I suppose put it aside for future use. Hopefully, so far the probing project comes up empty, uh, but there is strangely no mention of when it might restart. I'm not sure why. But the big moment from the garden shaft in episode 16 happens at the end, while everyone is standing around Terry Matheson's familiar examining table over at the money pit. Laird and Emma make sort of a surprise appearance, and Emma's uh, got another piece of wood. This one, I believe, is from the original wall of the money, of the garden shaft. She definitely says garden shaft, but I wasn't really clear as to where this garden, where it was from the, where it was, excuse me, in the garden shaft actually taken from. But be that as it may, she tells everyone that her testing of this piece of wood came up with gold, just like the wood sample from borehole DN 11.5 in episode 15. But what's cooler here is that as opposed to just, as opposed to all those other previous examples just talking that the wood was there, this time the scientists actually talk about the amount of gold detected. Emma says it is 0.11%, which... Doesn't sound like much to me, but appears to sound like quite a bit to both Emma and Dr. Spooner. Spooner says, quote, in my book, that's a big number. And Emma agrees by saying it's a lot of parts per billion. Kind of wish I could better understand all this, what it all means. But the two of them seem to be pretty hyped up about this amount, that it is strange. I wish they would talk about natural deposits and how how it would relate to that. Um, I, like I said, I just wish I could understand better what quote unquote, a lot really means and how this gold could have ended up inside a piece of wood. Fingers crossed. This is all explained to us sooner or later. That's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Don't forget you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride music. Also, if you'd like to help out the podcast in another way, then you can do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks to everybody who's done that already. I really appreciate it. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Digging Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you send me an email or a direct message on social media, I'll probably answer it here on a future podcast. So if for some reason you don't want that read on the podcast, just make a note of that. Well, it's been a long show. And that means it's crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.